0: The Gospel of Life, Chapter 2 I came that they may have life The Christian message concerning life The life was made manifest, and we saw it With our gaze fixed on Christ, the word of life Faced with the countless grave threats to life present in the modern world One could feel overwhelmed by sheer powerlessness. Good can never be powerful enough to triumph over evil. At such times, the people of God, and this includes every believer, is called to profess with humility and courage its faith in Jesus Christ, the word of life. The gospel of life is not simply a reflection, however new and profound, on human life, nor is it merely a commandment, aimed at raising awareness and bringing about significant changes in society. Still less is it an illusory promise of a better future. The gospel of life is something concrete and personal, for it consists in the proclamation of the very person of Jesus. Jesus made himself known to the Apostle Thomas, and in him to every person, with the words, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is also how he spoke of himself to Martha, the sister of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is the Son, who from all eternity receives life from the Father, and who has come among men to make them sharers in this gift. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Through the words, the actions, and the very person of Jesus, man is given the possibility of knowing the complete truth concerning the value of human life. From this source, he receives, in particular, the capacity to accomplish this truth perfectly, that is, to accept and fulfill completely the responsibility of loving and serving of defending and promoting human life. In Christ, the gospel of life is definitively proclaimed and fully given. This is the gospel, which, already present in the revelation of the Old Testament, and indeed written in the heart of every man and woman, has echoed in every conscience from the beginning, from the time of creation itself, in such a way that, despite the negative consequences of sin, It can also be known in its essential traits by human reason. As the Second Vatican Council teaches, Christ perfected Revelation by fulfilling it through his whole work of making himself present and manifesting himself, through his words and deeds, his signs and wonders, but especially through his death and glorious resurrection from the dead and final sending of the Spirit of Truth. Moreover, he confirmed with divine testimony what Revelation proclaimed that God is with us to free us from the darkness of sin and death and to raise us up to life eternal. Hence, with our attention fixed on the Lord Jesus, we wish to hear from Him once again the words of God and meditate anew on the gospel of life. The deepest and most original meaning of this meditation on what Revelation tells us about human life was taken up by the Apostle John in the opening words of his first letter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we saw it, and testified to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. In Jesus, the word of life, God's eternal life is thus proclaimed and given. Thanks to this proclamation and gift, our physical and spiritual life, also in its earthly phase, acquires its full value and meaning. For God's eternal life is in fact the end to which our living in this world is directed and called. In this way, the gospel of life includes everything that human experience and reason tell us about the value of human life, accepting it, purifying it, exalting it, and bringing it to fulfillment. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Life is always a good. The fullness of the Gospel message about life was prepared for in the Old Testament, especially in the events of the Exodus, the center of the Old Testament faith experience, Israel discovered the preciousness of its life in the eyes of God. When it seemed doomed to extermination because of the threat of death hanging over all its newborn males, the Lord revealed Himself to Israel as its Savior, with the power to ensure a future to those without hope. Israel thus comes to know clearly that its existence is not at the mercy of a Pharaoh who can exploit it at his despotic whim. On the contrary. Israel's life is the object of God's gentle and intense love. Freedom from slavery meant the gift of an identity, the recognition of an indestructible dignity, and the beginning of a new history in which the discovery of God and discovery of self go hand in hand. The Exodus was a foundational experience and a model for the future. Through it, Israel comes to learn that whenever its existence is threatened, It need only turn to God with renewed trust in order to find in him effective help. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Thus, in coming to know the value of its own existence as a people, Israel also grows in its perception of the meaning and value of life itself. This reflection is developed more specifically in the wisdom literature on the basis of daily experience of the precariousness of life and awareness of the threats which assail it. Faced with the contradictions of life, faith is challenged to respond. More than anything else, it is the problem of suffering which challenges faith and puts it to the test. How can we fail to appreciate the universal anguish of man when we meditate on the book of Job? The innocent man, overwhelmed by suffering, is understandably led to wonder, why is light given to him that is in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures? But even when the darkness is deepest, faith points to a trusting and adoring acknowledgement of the mystery. I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted," says Job. Revelation progressively allows the first notion of immortal life planted by the Creator in the human heart to be grasped with ever greater clarity. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's mind. The first notion of totality and fullness is waiting to be manifested in love and brought to perfection by God's free gift through sharing in his eternal life. The name of Jesus has made this man strong. In the uncertainties of human life, Jesus brings life's meaning to fulfillment. The experience of the people of the covenant is renewed in the experience of all the poor who meet Jesus of Nazareth. Just as God, who loves the living, had reassured Israel in the midst of danger, so now the Son of God proclaims to all who feel threatened and hindered that their lives too are a good to which the Father's love gives meaning and value. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. With these words of the prophet Isaiah, Jesus sets forth the meaning of his own mission. All who suffer, because their lives are in some way diminished, thus hear from him the good news of God's concern for them, and they know for certain that their lives too are a gift carefully guarded in the hands of the Father. It is above all the poor to whom Jesus speaks in his preaching and actions, The crowds of the sick and the outcasts who follow him and seek him out find in his words and actions a revelation of the great value of their lives and how their hope of salvation is well founded. The same thing has taken place in the Church's mission from the beginning. When the Church proclaims Christ as the One who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil for God was with Him, She is conscious of being the bearer of a message of salvation which resounds in all its newness, precisely amid the hardships and poverty of human life. Peter cured the cripple who daily sought alms at the beautiful gate of the temple in Jerusalem, saying, I have no silver and gold, but I give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. By faith in Jesus, the author of life, Life which lies abandoned and cries out for help regains self-esteem and full dignity. The words and deeds of Jesus and those of his church are not meant only for those who are sick or suffering or in some way neglected by society. On a deeper level, they affect the very meaning of every person's life in its moral and spiritual dimensions. Only those who recognize that their life is marked by the evil of sin can discover in an encounter with Jesus the savior the truth and the authenticity of their own existence jesus himself says as much those who are well have no need of a physician but those who but those who are sick i have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance but the person who like the rich landowner in the gospel parable thinks that he can make his life secure by the possession of material goods alone, is deluding himself. Life is slipping away from him, and very soon he will find himself bereft of it, without ever having appreciated its real meaning. Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In Jesus' own life, from the beginning to the end, we find a singular dialectic between the experience of the uncertainty of human life and the affirmation of its value. Jesus' life is marked by uncertainty from the very moment of his birth. He is certainly accepted by the righteous, who echo Mary's immediate and joyful yes. But there is also from the start rejection on the part of a world which grows hostile and looks for the child in order to destroy him a world which remains indifferent and unconcerned about the fulfillment of the mystery of this life entering the world. There was no place for them in the inn. In this contrast between threats and insecurity on the one hand and the power of God's gift on the other, there shines forth all the more clearly the glory which radiates from the house of Nazareth and from the manger at Bethlehem. This life which is born is salvation for all humanity. Life's contradictions and risks were fully accepted by Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The poverty of which Paul speaks is not only a stripping of divine privileges, but also a sharing in the lowliest and most vulnerable conditions of human life. Jesus lived this poverty throughout his life. Until the culminating moment of the cross, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. It is precisely by his death that Jesus reveals all the splendor and value of life, inasmuch as his self oblation on the cross becomes the source of new life for all people. In his journeying amid contradictions, And in the very loss of his life, Jesus is guided by the certainty that his life is in the hands of the Father. Consequently, on the cross, he can say to him, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, that is, my life. Truly great must be the value of human life if the Son of God has taken it up and made it the instrument of the salvation of all humanity called to be conformed to the image of his son god's glory shines on the faith on the face of man life is always a good this is an instinctive perception and a fact of experience and man is called to grasp the profound reason why this is so why is life a good the question is found everywhere in the bible And from the very first pages, it receives a powerful and amazing answer. The life which God gives man is quite different from the life of all other living creatures. Inasmuch as man, although formed from the dust of the earth, is a manifestation of God in the world, a sign of his presence, a trace of his glory. This is what St. Irenaeus of Lyon wanted to emphasize in his celebrated definition. Man living man, is the glory of God. Man has been given a sublime dignity based on the intimate bond which unites him to his creator. In man, there shines forth a reflection of God himself. The book of Genesis affirms this when in the first account of creation, it places man at the summit of God's creative activity as its crown, At the culmination of a process which leads from indistinct chaos to the most perfect of creatures. Everything in creation is ordered to man and everything is made subject to him. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing. This is God's command to the man and the woman. A similar message is found also in the other account of creation. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. We see here a clear affirmation of the primacy of man over things. These are made subject to him and entrusted to his responsible care, whereas for no reason can he be made subject to other men and almost reduced to the level of a thing. In the biblical narrative, the difference between man and other creatures is shown above all by the fact that Only the creation of man is presented as the result of a special decision on the part of God, a deliberation to establish a particular and specific bond with the Creator. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. The life which God offers to man is a gift by which God shares something of himself with his creature." Israel would ponder at length the meaning of this particular bond between man and God. The book of Sirach, too, recognizes that God, in creating human beings, endowed them with strength like his own and made them in his own image. The biblical author sees as part of this image not only man's dominion over the world, but also those spiritual faculties which are distinctively human such as reason, discernment between good and evil, and free will. He filled them with knowledge and understanding and showed them good and evil. The ability to attain truth and freedom are human prerogatives inasmuch as man is created in the image of his creator, God who is true and just. Man alone, among all visible creatures, is capable of knowing and loving his creator. The life which God bestows upon man is much more than mere existence in time. It is a drive toward fullness of life. It is the seed of an existence which transcends the very limits of time. For God created man in incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity. The Yahwist account of creation expresses the same conviction. The ancient narrative speaks of a divine breath which is breathed into man so that he may come to life. The Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The divine origin of the spirit of life explains the perennial dissatisfaction which man feels throughout his days on earth. Because he is made by God and bears within himself an indelible imprint of God, man is naturally drawn to God. When he heeds the deepest yearnings of the heart, Every man must make his own, the words of truth expressed by St. Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. How very significant is the dissatisfaction which marks man's life in Eden as long as his sole point of reference is the world of plants and animals. Only the appearance of the woman, a being who is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, and in whom the Spirit of God, the Creator, is also alive, can satisfy the need for interpersonal dialogue so vital for human existence. In the other, whether man or woman, there is a reflection of God himself, the definitive goal and fulfillment of every person. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist wonders. Compared to the immensity of the universe, Man is very small, and yet this very contrast reveals his greatness. You have made him little less than a god, and crown him with glory and honor. The glory of God shines on the face of man. In man the Creator finds his rest, as St. Ambrose comments with a sense of awe. Quote, the sixth day is finished, and the creation of the world ends with the formation of that masterpiece, which is man, who exercises dominion over all living creatures and is, as it were, the crown of the universe and the supreme beauty of every created being, truly we should maintain a reverential silence since the Lord rested from every work he had undertaken in the world. He rested then in the depths of man. He rested in man's mind and in his thought. After all, he had created man endowed with reason, capable of imitating him, of emulating his virtue, of hungering for heavenly graces. In these, his gifts, God reposes, who has said, upon whom I shall rest, if not upon the one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. I thank the Lord God, who has created so wonderful a work in which to take his rest, unquote. Unfortunately, God's marvelous plan was marred by the appearance of sin in history. Through sin, man rebels against his creator and ends up by worshiping creatures. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. As a result, man not only deforms the image of God in his own person, but is tempted to offenses against it in others as well, replacing relationships of communion by attitudes of distrust, indifference, hostility, and even murderous hatred. When God is not acknowledged as God, the profound meaning of man is betrayed, and communion between people is compromised. In the life of man, God's image shines forth anew and is again revealed in all its fullness at the coming of the Son of God in human flesh. Christ is the image of the invisible God, He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. He is the perfect image of the Father. The plan of life given to the first Adam finds at last its fulfillment in Christ. Whereas the disobedience of Adam had ruined and marred God's plan for human life and introduced death into the world, the redemptive obedience of Christ is the source of grace poured out upon the human race, opening wide to everyone the gates of the kingdom of life. As the Apostle Paul states, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. All who commit themselves to following Christ are given the fullness of life. The divine image is restored, renewed, and brought to perfection in them. God's plan for human beings is this, that they should be conformed to the image of his Son. Only thus, in the splendor of this image, Can man be freed from the slavery of idolatry, rebuild lost fellowship, and rediscover his true identity? Next time, part two of chapter two.